This is the Bartender Journey Podcast. It's the Bartender Journey Podcast number 182. My name is Brian Vincent Weber. Thanks for listening. This is the podcast that talks all about bartending and cocktails and spirits. Well, this week on the show, we're going to talk to Neil Bodenheimer from Cane and Table and Cure in New Orleans. And he's one of the owners of those uh, establishments and a great bartender. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation as recorded down in New Orleans. And you have to know how to get people talking. I mean, we are creating communities. But first, let's do a book of the week. It's The Curious Bartender, The Artistry and Alchemy of Creating the Perfect Cocktail by Tristan Stevenson. We spoke with Tristan in episode number 122. He's a really interesting guy and has a lot of great things to say. Uh, This book, it has a big section on technique, uh, on ingredients, and uh, there's a lot to learn from here. Uh, A lot about uh, different methods, even, um, you know, some really uh, high-end stuff like clarification and using smoke in your cocktails, using eggs in your cocktails, but uh, also... um, everything down from the basic to the most most advanced stuff you can think of and then uh it goes into the recipe section where he does an interesting thing he has a classic recipe and then he'll do uh his uh take on it and uh his pretty elaborate uh take on it so uh everything from uh the aviation negroni uh even martinis and uh cosmos and he, he gives you a recipe for a cosmo but then he shows you how to make his cosmo pop and it's a frozen uh concoction which looks really cool and interesting (laughs) i'd love to try that but uh yeah that's our book of the week and if you go over to bartenderjourney.net you'll see a link to uh, an amazon link and uh you can go over there and and buy a book and uh whether you uh buy this book or you buy anything at amazon during that sort of session after you click through an amazon link on bartenderjourney.net you'll be helping out the show just a little bit and uh we'd sure appreciate if you did that all right so let's do a cocktail of the week and we'll do the sidecar and uh in tristan's book he has the sidecar uh, the classic sidecar recipe, and then uh, he does something he calls the side caress, which is uh, uh, we're not going to get into that one today, but we're going to stick with the classic sidecar today for our cocktail of the week, and uh, it's going to be one and th- one and a half ounce of cognac, uh, three quarters ounce of Cointreau, three quarters ounce of fresh lemon juice, and you're going to shake that up with ice and strain it into a chilled coupe glass, and you can, uh, if you like, you can do a sugar rim on that glass, which is uh, kind of interesting. I actually uh, competed in a contest recently by Merlet Cognac, and uh, it was a sidecar competition where you had to do a little uh, twist on a sidecar and then make an original recipe with their cognac. So for my entry into this competition, I uh, called mine the Gima Sidecar, and Gima's a uh, French motorcycle producer, and so that's where the name comes from. I used two ounces of the uh, of their blended cognac. I used half an ounce of their triple sec, or uh, the, the triple citrus, Merlet triple citrus liqueur half an ounce of grapefruit syrup and I'll tell you how I made that in just a second uh, one ounce of lemon juice fresh lemon juice and then uh, I did use a sugar rim and actually I grated some um, with a microplaner I grated some grapefruit rind into that sugar and uh, yeah I made a, made a sugar rim with that and uh, so the grapefruit syrup is, uh, is pretty delicious I don't even know if I want to give the secret away because it's so good but uh, you take uh, a uh, like a Y um, vegetable peeler uh, Y peeler and um, take the rind off of grapefruit and uh, let's say one large grapefruit and uh, just none of the white pith, just the, just the rind itself. And then let that sit with some sugar uh, at least six, eight hours, maybe overnight. And uh, ideally you want to do that in a, in a, um, in a uh, like a, 
quart container or you know zip ziploc bag and uh, let that sit. All the uh, sh- the sh- oils come out from the sugar rind from the rind and combine with the sugar and it makes uh, it's delicious. And then uh, just add some hot water from that and then strain out the solids and it's a whew, it's really good. Good in a gin and tonic, believe it or not. Just a drop of that in a gin and tonic. Wow, it's good. Uh, so anyway, uh, so same thing here. We're going to uh, shake all that with ice and double strain it into a chilled coupe glass. Uh, in this case, with the uh, sugar rim, I like to rim just uh, half of the glass so you're giving your guests the option to use the sugar rim or not. So uh, that's our cocktail of the week, or two cocktails of the week. Let's talk to Neil Bodenheimer. We're, uh, we're driving around New Orleans. What, uh, what neighborhood is this? So this is Central City right now. We're taking the uh, the fastest route to Cure, uh, maybe the most scenic route to Cure. <laughs> it's interesting. You know, I, I rarely get out of the French Quarter when I come for tales, so it's uh, it's it's good to see the rest of the city. <laughs> so if so if you know anything about Mardi Gras, this is actually where Zulu starts their starts their course. They start it through Central City and then go to Lee Circle. So um, this is actually a really important cultural neighborhood. Is that right? And I'm sure, I guess, well, with the hurricane, there was widespread damage. I'm sure it hit most all these neighborhoods, huh? Yeah, this, this neighborhood would have, been, would have been really bad. It still is. I mean, if you go through parts of this neighborhood, people that couldn't afford to rebuild or, you know, investment properties for people that they didn't really care about are still in pretty bad shape. But this is uh, 10 years later, almost 11 years later, it's all pretty much fixed up. So, but yeah, this this all would have been underwater. Yeah. And so uh, we're going. We're headed to Cure. You play your spot, Cure. And uh, what was the what's the neighborhood like over there? And why and why did you decide to put it there? So when we opened Cure almost eight years ago, uh, the Ferret Street corridor was, uh, I would say, and I think this is generous was was down on its luck. Uh, it, it had been down on its luck since the since the late 70s, and there have been multiple revivals or attempted revivals uh, that didn't work. And post-Katrina, it, it was it was a ghost town. And we saw a lot of potential there, and we saw that there were some, some things that were about to happen with the city where they were going to put a cultural overlay on the corridor. And we felt like knowing that that we felt that it would be an easy place for our restaurants and bars to want to open so we tried to get ahead of the ahead of the curve and and, and we bought our building as an old firehouse from uh from 1905 and uh and started our renovation project and uh, and we just hoped that no one would get shot outside and no one did and next thing you know more businesses came and now it's a thriving uh commercial corridor and a really exciting part of uh the new orleans landscape again nice now i feel like i've heard this type of story before you he worked for danny myers and he's he had that similar philosophy he has that philosophy where he finds a neighborhood that he feels is up and coming and uh and dives full in head at first into uh that neighborhood right and he actually will invest in the neighborhood besides his his place right yeah absolutely and it's uh i mean it's critical if you i, I mean i think sometimes when you're you know for when we opened Cure, I think I was, you know, 30, 31, and we didn't have a lot of assets. We didn't have the ability to do everything we wanted to do, and but we knew that we wanted to own the property, and we knew that that there were only a limited amount of places where we could afford the property, and so a flooded out 
pretty bad, you know, pretty bad area was one of our only options. We just felt like the upside was there and that's, and that's what made us feel a little more comfortable, but I don't think you ever really feel comfortable. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a tough business and, uh, you know, not everybody realizes that the margins aren't that great in the bar business, you know? No, it's true. And, uh, and particularly in, in the craft bar business, so you, uh, you know, you have a significant, uh, you have significantly more food, food waste and uh, you have to find ways to, to lower that. And then you also have the ability, it takes more, it, it, it takes more labor. It takes more, uh, it takes higher, higher quality spirits. It's uh, higher quality ice. There, there's, there's just more investment. And uh, you know, I'd like to believe that over time there's more return, but um, I think you, you have to be passionate about it to really wanna make those sacrifices and do it, and do it in a way that is uh, a lot harder to maybe get the same result. But yeah, you got to be true to yourself, and that's that's integrity, right? <laughs> yeah, I sure hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so um, eight years, huh? And, uh, and we're oh, actually coming up on it right right here. You can see the Ferret corridor. Um, we still have our thrift store, Bloomin' Deals, right over here. Uh, donut shop, coffee house bike shop, snowball stand, uh, bagel place, pizza place, <laughs> formal wear place. <laughs> formal wear place was there before. Comic book shop, uh, tattoo studio, uh, a music venue. Right. It's uh, got a nail salon now. Wow. Uh, and so it's kind of, you know, the neighborhood's kind of sprung up around us, which has been really nice. Very cool. Which is empty and All right. Wow, beautiful. Awesome. Love the high ceilings and uh, you got a lot of you got a lot of bottles there, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's the uh, we like to call it one of our, our home field advantage. It's uh, I, I have no idea how many bottles we have in here, but it's uh, it's not the most, but it certainly isn't the least. So do you? I assume you get a lot of locals. Do you get tourists as well? Yeah, fine. I think I think that was like one of the most surprising things for us was early on, we really expected to be a neighborhood bar, in a local bar, and I mean within the first year we would see people take take cabs in what was a really rough area at the time, and they would take cabs and they would get out and we'd be like Jesus, what the fuck are these people doing? You know. <laughs> And, and, and over time, we've gotten used to it. And I just think that a, a lot of our success has been right place, right time. And, and so it's been, it's been interesting to see that people still get in a cab or, or an Uber now, and they'll come over here, and they'll, and, and they'll take the, 50, you know, the 10, 15-minute cab ride from the, you know, from the French Quarter to come see us, which I've always taken as a great honor, and, and it's, it's, it's a privilege for us. Yeah. That sounds that sounds like uh, Herbs and Rye has a similar story. Yeah, you know it's uh, it's it really is awe inspiring because when you had when you have zero expectation for something like that and it happens, you really you really appreciate it a lot. <laughs> wow! So this was a firehouse. Um, I, lo I love restaurants and bars built in firehouses. It's such a cool thing. Yeah, and it, but it was important for us that it didn't feel that you couldn't. We didn't want it to be themed fire in any way we didn't want we didn't want people to come in and say oh my god it's a firehouse yeah. we wanted you to look around and say god i wonder what this building was 
and then maybe be able to put it together. But so it was 1905, so it was actually a horse and carriage uh, firehouse. So if you look through the arch that faces upper line, kind of where the window is, there are actually two iron guards that would have been the arch guard if the carriage would have come in at the wrong angle. It would have slid right back down. And then uh, where our patio, when we, when we actually bought the building, the, um, there was a garage back there and it was not, it was not stable, so we knocked it down. And it actually was not, a, it was not an original structure. And so we, when we actually put the patio back into use, uh, that would have been the green, and there would have been, a, uh, and then the, the back building was a stable, and so that's where the horse would graze, and then and they would, and then they would uh, tie it up to the wagon. Well, you, so you've been in the business since you were 18, is it? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been in the business. So I've been in the business over 20 years. Um, I started off as a bouncer, uh, you know. Regrettably, I had, I had a great time doing it, but um, you know, when I when I grew up, it was 18 to drink in in uh, Louisiana and uh, it was so it was it was different I mean when it, when it, when I turned 18 I said okay I'm gonna go you know I've been going to bars since you know I was thir 13 and 14 which I know is, is is really hard to believe if you're from anywhere else um, no, no, uh, well if you're from a different time anyway yeah 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 so I, I know I'm with you <laughs> and, and so it was um, it was just it was it was a different time and so we got we got hired. Actually, another friend of mine and I we went and said, "Hey, we want a." Uh, we went to a bar that we liked, and we said, "Hey, we'd love to have a job." And they said it happened to be right after. Uh, it was the, kind of the perfect timing because it was a college bar, and Tulane was letting out for the summer, and they needed people, and they. And I don't think we realized it at the time, but they were using us to promote because they could get a bunch of eighteen-year-olds in there. And so it was, we were giving them another network, which, you know, if you've been in the bar business long enough, you, you start to realize that it's all about networks and different groups of people coming in. And then, so then you traveled around the world for a bit, right? I did. Um, so I, uh, I went to the University of Texas at Austin, and when I, when I graduated, I, uh, I decided it would be a really good idea for, to, to go travel around the world. And I thought it was going to be five months and it turned into almost a year and so my brother and I he was working in the he was working right before the the dot-com bust um in the in the you know around 2000 and so he quit his job and went traveling with me and he had back of the house experience I had front of the house experience and uh together we opened up a, a restaurant in the Perinthian Islands in Malaysia and um you know ran that for a few months and then we actually realized we were like what what are we doing like this is you know uh, as much as we love this place we have tickets in europe that we're gonna avoid <laughs> if we wait too long <laughs> and they're worth more than you know five months of services so we uh so we so we left our little paradise and, and moved on that must have been great and a big influence in how you how you run things. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think it I think it definitely made me appreciate the business in a way that I didn't that I, that I didn't before. I, I always liked it, but I, I think there's a little seriousness that happens when when something's your own or when you're a manager that is different than when you're. And I, I think that's changed a little bit as as a level. I think the level of professionalism has changed over the years, but. Um, 
I, for for me, it definitely ticked on a light about the way I wanted things done in a restaurant that I owned. And and then when I went and moved to New York right after I was traveling, it was it it made sense. I started I was going up there to get to get into advertising, and and I and, and I found a restaurant job to you know while I was looking and I worked really hard and the next thing you know I got an advertising job and then I quit after a month because I hated it and then I got and then I but I then then I really went back to the restaurant and bar business and said you know this is something that I I really want to do I can do this and I can make a I can make a living doing this and I like it and I, I kind of had never really thought of it as a career until that moment and I think you know you can talk to a thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand restaurant workers that do it professionally, and they've all had that moment where they say, "You know, I never really thought this could be my career, but I actually think I maybe want it to be my career." Mm-hmm. And and from there, it was really it it just things just started to fall in line, and and I worked at a place that had it was one of the first restaurant groups in New York to have a corporate mixologist, and uh, I happened to be at the restaurant that was his first consult and so I got a lot of great time with him and uh, his name is Evan Clem and he was a big influence um, and he really got me on the path towards my career and um, you know it was I don't think I would have found bartending the same way if it hadn't been for that kind of serendipitous you know experience and what's your thoughts on um, there's some talk now about you know should you stay in one place or as a bartender or move around a lot, you know, and I think, I think you learn a lot at every job and there, there is some, there is some benefit to working at different places and with different people. Um, I, I mean, I think that's, I think I have mixed emotions on that, particularly as an employer, sure. because I think that when you bounce around a lot, you don't learn the intricacies. You just learn the, the surface. And I think there's knowledge that comes in having to do something that is not, exciting and new all the time. I mean, life is not always exciting and new. And, you know, I, I guess in some ways maybe we should try and make it exciting and new all the time, but you have to know how to get things done when it's your 300th shift. And you don't really feel like going to work, but you, but you, but you got to. And I think that there are lessons in that too. And, sure. And I think that, I think that there's some, some, some character things that, that stay with us through life. And it's, and I, I mean, I think that sounds like really somber and negative, but I think that there's also getting to know your regulars, having a long-term relationship, building friendships, seeing, seeing a, an, an area change, seeing a bar change. And I think that there, there are things about being in a place long-term, having real roots. You know, I think roots are really underrated. And, uh, but I also think, new experiences, seeing different ways that people do things, or I think it's really useful. So as I said, I'm, I'm kind of conflicted on it, but I have really meaningful, I think I, have, I feel like I have really meaningful relationships with the people that I've worked with for a long time because I really like them generally and I care about them and I want to see them succeed even if it's not with us. And I think a lot of employees don't give any thought at all, zero thought to the, how much investment is, is being placed into them as an employee. Well, yeah, I mean, but that's, you know, that it's, it's definitely something that we think about. I mean, we're putting a lot of time and effort and knowledge into, into our apprentices to make them them then bartenders. And that's, 
it's it, it, it is a lot of investment and when you have to start over it's not it's not fun but the reality is is that um I, th- I mean, I, w- I would assume most bartenders go through this, or, or, and I don't think it's just you know, I don't think it's just a bartending thing, but I think it's a life thing. It's just when you think you know what you're doing, you find something that just shatters all that, and you say, "God, I really don't know what I'm doing." And uh, I've experienced that multiple times in my career, and I'll probably experience it a bunch more. And I think that you can learn. The, 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 this is a long, it's a long learning process. And the longer I do it, the more I realize how nuanced it is. And I think that there's something to be said about, about really digging into that, you know, getting, getting off the surface. But, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, that, I, that I see is a, you know, is a changing trend in the beginning of the craft cocktail movement, um, the modern craft cocktail movement, I think that there was a lot of people asking themselves the questions, why? Because the knowledge wasn't there. And I see the question why less than I used to. And I, I think that's one of the things that I wish would that we could go back to, is that it's become, how do we make this digestible? This is the truth, this is the way. You know, there are a lot of these things that we don't know for sure. It's been trial and error. and I really would love to see us go back to that why. Why am I doing this? Why, why am I doing it this way? Why am I using this spirit? Why, you know, it's like there, there are a thousand whys that we ask ourselves, and I, I think that a great bartender needs to get into that nuance, but as well, that's only one part of bartending. And there's so much of this craft that is, I have another, another friend and mentor of mine who used to read the paper cover to cover before he would start his bar shift so that he could talk to anybody that walked in the bar about anything of, that was timely. Um, and I think this idea, I think this idea of just knowing drinks and not knowing your guests well enough or not knowing current events and not wanting to talk to people is something that's gotta, it's gotta change. I mean, and, and a thousand people have said it in a thousand different ways of late. And listen, I think some of the most hospitable people that I know are in this business. But I think that we gotta get the drinks right, but we gotta get the service right, and we gotta get the speed right. And we have to do it without cutting corners and without dumbing it down. Yeah. That's something I think about a lot. Uh, as a bartender myself, you know, it's like making the drinks is maybe 10% of what I'm doing. You know, I'm making sure the temperature's right in the room, the lighting, the lighting, music. music, so important. You gotta know how to play to the room. I mean, it's, and you have to know how to get people talking. I mean, we are creating communities and this idea that, that, that people are there to see your show. No, it's not, it's not true. They're there to talk to each other. They're there to look at each other. They're there to meet people. They're there. They're there to see their neighbor. You know, it doesn't, there are a thousand, you know, there's, there are a lot, a lot of different reasons why, why someone comes to a bar. But we have, we have a responsibility to make sure that people are having a good time and that they're doing it responsibly. My favorite trick, I mean, not, not that I invented this at all, but I'm sure I learned it from somebody else, but, you know, so, sometimes you'll have somebody sitting there alone and they're talking to you and, yeah. you know, you're having a nice conversation, but you got other things to do, you know, so it's always like, 
bold, you know, John. <laughs> well, you know, what's the old? That's the old bartender saying: you can either talk to them or you can get them talking to each other. <laughs> so it, it's, you know, it's important, and you and you have to. So you almost, you know, really good bartenders know how to hold court, yeah. and know how to get people talking, and there's a, an exchange of ideas, and that's, you know, that that's when bars are at their best. Now that's one of the things I'm most proud of here at Cure, um, is that we have a lot of consistent regulars, eight-year regulars, they, that'll come in consistently and they see each other and they have long-lasting friendships now. They're in each other's lives. I mean, uh, well, you know, well, you know my, my bar manager, Ryan Gannon, went to go see our regular Patrick, who just became a priest, went to go, brought, brought, his, brought his sister and his, and his niece and nephew to go see Patrick do a mass. And Ryan is not a religious person. But... It's that kind of closeness and that kind of community that makes me really appreciate what we do. It's not, it's not about making the best drink someone's ever had. It's about making someone the best drink you can while they're enjoying it in a, in a beautiful place and they're, you know, they're in, and they're getting to be part of a community. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. You know, when you, you know, when you take it all in, it's kind of, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a pretty cool thing that we get to do. Can we take a look at your cocktail menu? Yeah, sure. Oh, I didn't see any labels on your bitters, but now I see. No, a lot of them are rebottled. Um, you know, when we opened Cure, it was the, there weren't so many bitters commercially available, yeah. and uh, and so we made a lot more in the beginning. And there's a bitter for, for every for every mood now, and so we don't really we don't make any more bitter. We don't make our own bitters anymore. It's a pain in the ass. It's a pain in the ass, and it's just not. You know, it's just not worth the time. No. And when there are people that are better at it, making them. Yeah. And they're, that do... They're passionate about it. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's, uh, yeah, so we, so we buy most of our bitters, but, we, but we've had this rack for a long time. We do believe in dropping over dashing. Mm -hmm. um, we just, I find it to be significantly more accurate. If you do it the right way, if you just squeeze and squirt and splurt, it's not, it's not. But if you, if you continue, if you count, it is. It yeah. makes it makes a difference. You need the control. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you get different dashing with with full and you know with half full bottles and full bottles and partially empty bottles. It's like how tired you are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know how much you know how much elbow grease you throwing into it. It's like it, it's it takes all that out of it. And I, I I I really appreciate droppers for that. And I know that they can come off as pretentious, but they are accurate. And you're a jigger bar, I assume. Yes, yes. The, in, until until we until we take our shingle down. Well, I don't even think we have a sign, but <laughs> but but yes, we are. So we kind of open up our menu and we get to uh, our beer section. And a few locals. We always try and support craft um, whenever possible. But it's uh, which is becoming a lot easier these days, particularly in New Orleans. Was a tough beer town for a long time, and and we in the early days really wanted to support craft beer and so we only put craft on and we've kept that up um it's become less important now that more people pick you know use it so i don't know i i don't know what the future of our beer list is but that's what we've done for a long time but now that craft beer is thriving here i feel like it doesn't it's not as important so maybe we'll go back and do some different stuff um we uh we go into uh all in bottles and cans uh, we 
we don't have any draft system here. No draft cocktails, no, no, no draft soda. Uh, I just, you, unless you're an, an expert in cleaning, it doesn't make sense, or you're in a big enough city where they have great cleaning services. Uh, I, would rather, I would rather either do it well or not do it at all. So we go into a beer and a shot section, which is always fun. We try and pick interesting things to, to, uh, to pair. And like the last one has Ryan made a, a rock and rye. That's like a summer rock and rye. Uh-huh. And then we go into our, um, we show off our happy hour, which has always been a big thing for us here. We actually didn't have one and we would get calls every day for the first year we were open. Like, can you guys please do a happy hour? Can you please? Like, it was like every day. And so finally we just, we just put one in and it's been, it's been nonstop ever since. Then we go into our small bites, um, and cheeses and then into our, into our cocktail menu, which is what you guys really actually care about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious, I'm, I was surprised to see the food come before the cocktails. Well, the, it's, it, it's, we've done it a lot of different ways and it's important. We it's important to merchandise your food. I mean, people, if people come to a cocktail bar, they know, they know, that the, they know that you have cocktails. They're going to find the cocktails. But they may not know that you have food or they may not care that you have food. So you have to work a lot harder for the things that are, that are, that are smaller parts of your business. Um, so we always, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably giving away the, the secrets to cure here, but... Um, we always the first cocktail on, the first cocktail on our menu has been the same format for oh, probably seven years, and we always do a champagne and shrub cocktail, mm-hmm. and we we do it because we love the margins on it, but we also love the format. It's a great way to put together a great acidulated house syrup, and um, it's something that we find that is can it, it it's it casts a really wide net. So we always get to do something seasonal and we just find that it's maybe one of the best expressions of the season for us. Yeah. And shrub and champagne is like one of my favorite things. You know, who needs shrub and soda when you you can have shrub and champagne. Next, we go into... So we always credit the bartenders and we've been doing that from from day one. Um, And there are a lot of reasons why we do. And I think sometimes... And people think about it and they say, God, this is, you know, it's, it's not, it doesn't matter, right? But it's important for these guys to, to understand, you know, to be, to, to, to be proud of what they're doing and to get credit for the work, for their work. And it's, I've always felt that way and I've always felt that it's nice to, it's nice to stand behind your work. And, you know, beyond that, it also, Sometimes, and this, this is something that is kind of a, you know, it's 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 something that we, that we that we always thought about. But a lot of times in a bar, you'll have people that will come and they'll be attached to one person. You know, they'll be like, oh, Brian, I'm coming to see you. You know, oh, you're not here. I'm out of here. I don't want to be here. But what ends up happening is when you go to a bar a decent amount and you've made a relationship with one person, you may not like that person's drinks. You may just like that person. And so what, it, what happens is that you start to see if you like someone's drinks, hey, maybe you want to meet them or maybe you want to have a relationship with them because you like their work. And, or, hey, maybe it's okay if I have a drink from someone else because that person knows what they're doing too. 
And so what I think it happens is that I think it actually gives some other folks maybe a little bit of credibility in their guest size and in regular guest size. And so it helps to kind of show that it's not just one person that knows what they're doing. It's not just one person that you want to talk to when you go into a bar. And that's been, it's been a nice thing for us. I mean, obviously there's no way to copyright a cocktail, so, but it's, you know, it's recorded somewhere that he, you know, that he made that drink at a yeah. certain, exactly in it's, summer of 2016. It says it right there. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it shows, it shows where it was made and it shows, you know, who made it. Yeah. So it's good. And so, so we try and switch it up. Uh, we, we, we had a, we had a change in, in, in attitude about cocktails. We realized that I was, had this epiphany about two years ago, two and a half, maybe even more than two years ago, uh, probably two and a half years ago that I felt like cocktail menus had, had gotten very hard to read. Yeah. And, um, I am a spirits professional. I know what almost every bottle in this bar tastes like. And sometimes I, so you can list out, you can, you can list out ingredients and I have no idea what it's going to taste like. I have, I think I have an idea, but if I don't know what it's going to taste like, how's my guest supposed to know what it's going to taste like? And so ultimately a happy guest is knowing what they can expect. And so, and my dad used to use this, uh, used to use this, this term and it would do, I've, said it a lot in the past few years because I, I think it explains this really, really well. I think it explains the, the trend that we were going through in craft cocktails really well. And he would always tell me, he'd say, I asked you what time it was, not how to build a watch. <laughs> and I felt like we were telling everybody how to build a watch when, every, when our guests really just wanted to know what time it was. Yeah. And so we just, we just blew up the way that we describe cocktails and we said, okay, what do people need to know? They need to know what it's going to taste like. They need to know what it's like. And so we always tried to, we always tried to find, we, are, we, we make classics and we make modern classics here. And that's what we've done from day one. And everything we make relates back to a classic. There are, there are mother cocktails in this world and you just like mother sauces and you, you relate back to them. So we, um, so we stopped and now we write a description. And because it doesn't matter whether it's got the weirdest thing in the world in it, what it, does it taste good? Yeah. And what does it taste like? Yeah. And so what, where someone might say, oh my God, this has tequila in it, I don't wanna drink it. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, is that sometimes they might really like it. Yeah, so for instance. Maybe we could read one here. Sure. <laughs> um, so, so the Irish Goodbye, which is by Matt Lofink, who works here and also at, uh, used to work at Belloc and also is a, is a manager at Cafe Henri for us. Uh, perfect for a hot day, this restorative Irish whiskey sour has notes of peach, mint, and green tea. Great. So that's telling us what it, yeah. what it tastes like. Not, so what not, it tastes not, like, but it's also that it's an Irish whiskey sour. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so the, I think One Summer Night is a really great example. A bright and sophisticated low-octane daiquiri with hints of chamomile, cherry stone, and sugarcane, and that's by Winston Willingham. Um, it's a mostly Damiana-based cocktail, okay. but there's no way someone would read that and say, God, I want that, but it really is a daiquiri, and it really tastes good, and so it's important. It's, I think it's Damiana and Maraschino, and so, you, so, we, so we hint at what we're using, but we're not 
but we're not overtly. It's, it's a lot like like a theme bar without. It's a lot like like what I said about about a bar having a theme without being a theme bar. Is it you 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 message what you have in it, but it's not through specific ingredients. It's through what does it taste like. So that's kind of how we get there. So we have twelve cocktails. Um, and the the seasons down here are a little met, are a little wonky. So we actually we we change eight times a year, but we only wow. change but we only change half the menu. Okay. So we'll so we'll do six or seven, and that way we can keep up with the seasons. Really, winter is one of one of our hardest here because it can go from, you know, it can go from forty degrees all the way up to eighty degrees. So we want to make sure if you if we had all winter drinks and we got a warm spell, then we would just be poorly positioned. So we want to make sure that we have one foot in you know, warmth and one foot into cold during that time. Mm-hmm. So that's why we do it so often. All right. And then we go into uh, 20 cocktails we love. So we used to have a few different sections here. We had obscure classics, we had cure classics, and we decided that um, as, yeah, the, for the first seven years of this bar, we had a pretty consistent idea who was coming in. We noticed that we were getting younger and younger people that weren't as well versed in craft cocktails. So we realized we were going to have to train again, we train our guests again, a little bit on classics. And so we decided that we were going to pick some classics. So we basically took the obscure classics, which were old. Co- we'd pick a cocktail book and we would do obscure classics, and then we would take old old cocktails of ours that we really loved and we put them up. So we decided that let's just do twenty cocktails we love. No. It wouldn't have such a such a confining term. It would just be it could be old cure cocktails. It can be classic classics. It can be obscure classics. It doesn't matter. Just twenty cocktails that we're thinking about that we really like, and we don't change. Which probably changes four times a year. Um, so we have Thousand Blue Eyes, which is which is a cure classic. Uh, Alaska, a Bramble, Brown Derby, Cloister, Cock and Bull Special. You know, Cock and Bull's pretty obscure. Col Ross, pretty obscure. Emerald, pretty obscure. Uh, Drink of Laughter and Forgetting, Cure. The Hardest Walk is Cure. La Louisiane, local. Uh, Little Boots, Boots, Cure. Negroni, like very, you know, a mother cocktail. Mm-hmm. Prado, obscure classic. Cure cocktail, Cure cocktail, Cure cocktail. Classic, Cure classic. I love that you have Tom Collins on the menu. It's such a great drink. <laughs> it is a great drink. We actually have it at Cafe Henri. We have like really base cocktails we have we don't have cold draft ice or uh, hand cut ice or any of that stuff we have it is regular hotel ice because we wanted to we wanted to show that there can be you can make great drinks on on regular ice and we only we have a martini a manhattan a rum and coke <laughs> we have a tom collins uh we have frozen negroni that's like the most cocktail thing that we have hmm. but they're all Great drinks. Oh, we have a Moscow Mule, but they're all like really well done, but really great classic drinks. Reserve twenty-five, thirty-dollar cocktails on this page. Yeah, so reserve. We've been doing this for years, and we always had a really nice allocation, um, and it's shrunk over the years, like it has for everybody. But we wanted to show that there are beautiful whiskeys and rums in this world that. You know that if you really want to step out and splurge and have a great night and have a and have a cocktail with these, that they're available mm-hmm. and they sell a lot more than you would think. Mm-hmm. And it's been something that we've always been happy to do. I mean, we have a um, 
a reserve daiquiri with, with Nick Palazzi's rum, uh, bonded Sazerac with uh, Taylor bonded rye, um, uh, VP Last Word, uh, Black Maple Hill rye Manhattan. Um, we have a Mai Tai with Diplomatico, uh, single vintage, and La Favorite Vu, uh, Gunshot Fizz, which was actually a cure classic um, with Peixos, but it's all Peixos bitters. Um, but it was it was an it's an expensive cocktail to make, so we had to put it we wanted to put it on that, um, and then a twenty year old of fashion we've got pretty good uh, line on some of the um, the twenty year old uh, orphan barrel stuff, and uh, I feel like it's great great thing to use for for making old fashions, and then a pachuga old fashioned with Delmage pachuga. And uh, and then this last one's actually one that we just added. We laid, we had our own barrel of Evan Williams uh, single barrel from a few years ago, and we saved some of it and laid down a um, laid down a Manhattan variation, and uh, and laid it down for two years wow. in bottle. And so it's nice. It's so it's so nice to let these things come together. I mean, I'm not a huge barrel aging fan when it comes to cocktails, but bottle aging for the right kind of cocktail is just, you know, just letting something, letting something mellow and come together. It really gives it, it, it's a really cohesive product and it's really nice. What do you think the science behind that is? I mean, your, your whiskey doesn't change much in the bottle. No, once it's in the I bottle. I just think it's, I just think it's, I just think it's integration. You know, I think it's giving, giving things time to, to round out, to oxidize a little bit. And it's just, you know, I think it just, it's like when you taste really old spirits and they round out and they, and they taste a little sweeter to you. Um, I'm sure that there's some decay and some dropout, but I'm not, I'm not our science guy in our, in my company. Well, this is such a pleasure, man. It's so, it's so great to meet you. I really appreciate you. Really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for, uh, for, uh, including me. That was a really interesting conversation with a, uh, really cool dude. So, uh, hope you enjoyed that. Uh, thanks for listening. We hope to see you again next week on the Bartender Journey Podcast. Stand, to- stand by. We'll do a toast at the very end. We always do a toast at the very end of the podcast. But uh, I hope you're subscribed to the show. And if you have any questions on how to do that, you can go to bartenderjourney.net slash subscribe. You can go to bartenderjourney.net slash contact and uh, get in touch. Please feel free to get in touch for any reason at all. I'd love to hear from you. So, uh, hey, you can find me on Twitter at Barkeep Tips. You can find the Bartender Journey Facebook page by searching Bartender Journey on Facebook. And uh, what else? Oh, Instagram is Bartender Journey. Here's our toast. May we be in heaven half an hour before the devil knows we're dead. Cheers. We'll see you next time on the Bartender Journey Podcast.